Well, let's see. You can uh, open to Acts chapter 2 again this morning. And uh, we will uh, look at that passage in just a minute. We began our, we've been studying the church, and we began that study several months ago uh, with the question, what is a church? What is a local church? And we have been seeking to answer that question and uh, spent a lot of time looking at the scriptures for an answer. Um, The short answer to that question is that a local church is the body of Christ gathered in a single location. Um, We believers gather regularly, we saw on the Lord's Day, they gather definably. There is a boundary around that church, membership. Uh, They gather under spiritual leadership of elders. Uh, They gather to fulfill the one another commands towards each other to exercise the love and authority of Christ over one another in fulfilling those commands. The church is one body, and there are responsibilities that each member bears to the other members in that body, and that's why the Spirit put them all together, we saw in 1 Corinthians 12. So here is the question we are currently looking at in looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper. How do many believers become one body? There's many believers in Brisbane. There's many believers all over the world. Uh, Are they all a part of the body of Christ? Yes, they're all part of that invisible body of Christ. They all possess the spirit who unites them together as one. And yet we see in the New Testament that the apostles went about planting small subsets of that universal body of Christ in different locations. What about this visible, these visible bodies of Christ? Um, to whom am I responsible to exercise the love and authority of Christ in those one another commands? Is it towards every believer that I might ever meet? Which elders must I obey and submit to? Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Which sheep are the elders going to give account for? And the obvious answer to those questions is everyone who's part of that local church. All the members of that local church. So that means that we've got to ask this question. How do many individual believers become one body? How does a local church appear? What is it that takes many believers and turns them into one body in Christ? One local church. And that's where we began our study several weeks ago. When we began the study of the church, we began with this question. What is a local church? Are five Christians who bump into each other at Aldi a church? What if they bow their heads and pray there together in the aisle? Is that a local church? What if the Aldi scene gives way to those five Christians singing choruses around a campfire? Is that a church? What if they close the evening with someone giving a devotional from God's word? What if they begin to repeat that exercise every Sunday morning or Sunday evening? Is that a church? What about if they include a hymn book or a piano or they appoint a pastor or build a building or open a bank account in the name of a church? Is that what makes a gathering of believers a local church? At what point do those five Christians in Aldi cross the line from not a church to now a church? What takes many believers and makes them one body? And in the invisible world, that is the Spirit. He's the one who indwells them all, uniting them together in one body. What about in the visible world, the local church, the visible body of Christ? If we can understand how many believers become one body, we will have come to the the essence of what the church is. What takes those believers and makes them a church, right? Whatever makes them a church is what a church is. That's it in its essence. Um, And this question is essential for us to answer as many believers. It's important that we come to an understanding of what the New Testament says a church is. We don't want to just create our own version of the church. 
Jesus is the head of the church, not you and not me. And we want to follow his pattern. And this has meant spending time looking carefully at the New Testament and the Old Testament at times. Uh, This question, what is a church, has occupied us for about 14 weeks so far. I think this is our 15th study. And you have been patient as we've worked through much of the New Testament's teaching on the church. In these last 14 weeks, I hope it's been clear that the Lord's word is sufficient to give us direction about this question of what a church is and how it's supposed to function, what it's supposed to be. And hopefully along the way, we've all come to understand our Bibles a little bit better as well. But we still have not answered the question of how many believers become one body. How do those five Christians in Aldi convert into a local church? When do they cross that line? What makes a church a church and no longer just a group of believers? How is a local church born? And when we have an answer to that question, we will have a really good understanding then of what a church is. And last week, we began to answer the question of what makes a church a church by looking at the ordinance of baptism. And this week, we're just going to go back and review very briefly what we covered and then finish up that study today. Next week, we will look at the Lord's Supper, and then I'm pretty much done with looking at the church. Um, And uh, we will uh, move on uh, to other things. And Lord willing, uh, the Lord will give us direction uh, in this study and next week as to how we can gather together as a local church and no longer just a body, a gathering of individual believers. So let's review briefly together what we saw last week, and then we'll look at the implications and see what questions we can work on together that come as a result. Okay. The topic of baptism and the Lord's Supper put us right on the verge of answering this question of what a church is. So last week, we looked at the ordinance of baptism, and we did so mainly from Peter's sermon in Acts 2. We looked at Peter's sermon, his call to that crowd of Jews gathered in Jerusalem. He called them to repent and to be baptized. From Peter's sermon, we saw that when Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter showed those people that he ascended and poured out the Spirit, upon his followers and in pouring out the spirit Jesus was fulfilling all those Old Testament prophecies that had said the spirit is going to come the Messiah will bring him he will bring life to this dead world and so we saw that in the ascension the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven that was the dawn of a new age the age of the spirit he would bring life once again to this dead world just as, he had, just as God had breathed life into the nostrils of that mass of clay that God had scraped together in the Garden of Eden. The question was then, how do we enter into this age of life in the Spirit? The Jews had rejected their Messiah, they had crucified him, and now he had withdrawn to heaven. How could they enter into the age of the Spirit if the Messiah who was supposed to bring him to them had left? And had returned to heaven. And so when Peter gets done with his sermon, the Jews beg him to tell them how they can enter into this new age, the age of the Spirit. And Peter exhorts them to repent and be baptized. And his instruction to them is striking because you remember we saw that John the Baptist had given the exact same instruction to the Jews before Jesus had begun his ministry. John the Baptist had said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And now Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says, okay, you want to know what to do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It's exactly the same thing that John had said. And yet John had clarified that people could repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but he said he could not give them the Spirit. One was coming after me who would baptize in the Holy Spirit, he said. And so now Peter stands up And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 40, I'm sorry, verse 38 in Acts chapter 2. Something has happened between John and Peter's sermons. And what has happened is Jesus has ascended to heaven and as a result now, 
He is pouring out the Spirit upon all those who repent and are baptized. And so that is what Peter urges the crowd to do. And in answer to his expectation, answer to his exhortation, 3,000 Jews step forward to be baptized. And their baptism makes visible their internal repentance. Peter had said, repent and be baptized. When he said, repent, we didn't see anything happen. But as soon as he says, repent and be baptized, now that crowd divides into two. And all those who have stepped forward to be baptized have repented, have received the Spirit, have entered into the new age. And so now there exists two groups of people upon this earth. Those who are part of the age of the Spirit, who have repented, who have been baptized, and those who have not. The age of the Spirit has begun. And this is the group who has life. And yet, in distancing themselves from that crooked generation, save yourselves from that crooked generation, Peter says, repent and be baptized, distance yourself from them. In doing that, these people are being baptized, but that baptism does something to them. It actually adds them to this new group of people, the people who are part of the age of the Spirit. It, it takes those 3,000 and it adds them to the church. And that's why Peter's sermon is concluded with their stepping forward to be baptized. And verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And we saw that that agrees with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 about what baptism is. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The first phrase of verse, of verse 13 is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. In one spirit we were all baptized. That's what John had said the Messiah would do. He would come, he would baptize in the spirit, and now all of those who followed him had the spirit. But in being baptized in the Spirit, now they all have the one Spirit. And so now they are all one body. That act of being baptized in the Spirit joins them together into one body in the invisible world. And the same thing, water baptism is a picture of that Spirit baptism. Spirit baptism unites them together into one body. When a new believer steps forward in repentance and faith, he is baptized and added to the church that day. He is baptized into one body. He moves across that line. Let me see if I can find out where I am in my notes here. How do we enter the invisible body of Christ? And the answer is through the baptism of the Spirit. How do we enter into the visible body of Christ? through the visible ordinance that Christ has given us to picture that, the ordinance of water baptism. So look at verse 13 once again. We all were baptized into one body. See, there's, there's our question right there before us. We're asking all this group of believers, one body. What moves us across that line? And the answer is we all... One body and what stands in between. It is the ordinance of baptism. And so when a new believer enters this world by repentance and faith, he steps across the line of baptism into the age of the Spirit, into the new covenant community, the church. And so we summed up the significance of baptism with these three points. I think we got through these last week. The first point was that water baptism makes internal repentance and faith visible. Nobody's saved by being baptized in water. You are saved by being baptized in the Spirit so that now you have the Spirit. 
But that is pictured by water baptism, meaning that the invisible repentance and faith that joins you to the community of the Spirit, the body of the Spirit, that invisible repentance and faith when made visible is what joins you then to the local church. So water baptism makes internal repentance and faith visible. The one who's baptized, if you are baptized, what are you doing? You are making a public proclamation. I have repented of my sins. I have become a follower of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You cannot be baptized and not be making those public declarations. The second thing that we saw about baptism was that water baptism publicly declares allegiance to Christ. The one baptized is taking the first step in a life of obedience to all the things that Christ has commanded. This is what Christ says to us in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. What's that mean? Baptize them and teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded. So baptism is the first step in a obeying all the things that Christ has commanded. It is our first act of submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. It is our public commitment that he will be my Lord. I will live according to his will and no longer according to mine. And of course, we do that imperfectly. But nevertheless, that is what baptism is. It is a public declaration of allegiance to Christ. It is a public commitment to obey all the things that the king has commanded. And thirdly, water baptism publicly affirms an individual to be a true follower of Christ and receives him into the membership of the visible body of Christ, the church. And we saw, first of all, that baptism is always into something. Galatians 3.27, baptism is into Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Baptism picks you up and it moves you to another world. It's you're baptized into another body. We see that in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. We see that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We see that in Acts 2. We see that in a number of passages in the New Testament. The second thing that we noticed under that third point there is that baptism is not only always into, it's also the opposite of church discipline. Baptism is judging someone to be a believer and receiving him into the church, whereas church discipline is judging someone to not be a believer and excluding him from the church. Both deal with the line between the church and the world, and in both, the threshold that we cross is repentance. If someone is a repentant sinner, baptize him and receive him in. If someone is an impenitent sinner and he will not repent, put him back out and treat him like an unbeliever. And so then we came to several questions regarding baptism. Who then should be baptized? Well, if baptism is a picture of receiving the Spirit and entering into the age of the Spirit and having eternal life, if it's a picture of my repentance and my faith in Jesus Christ, then who should we baptize? Babies? We baptize believers, people who have repented. So what then is the proper mode of baptism? Do we pour? Do we sprinkle? Do we immerse? What do we do? And uh, maybe we'll just look briefly here at Romans chapter 6. This, in my mind, is the best passage of Scripture to look at if we want to know what's baptism supposed to look like? How are we supposed to baptize somebody? Paul says to us in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus... There you go. So baptism is into. You were not in Christ. You got baptized and now you are in. Okay, so that would be referring to spirit baptism. Water baptism does not include us in the invisible body of Christ. It does into the visible body of Christ. But do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Think about those Jews on the day of Pentecost. They're part of the same crowd that crucified the Messiah. And yet Peter preaches his sermon and they repent and believe and it is the beginning of a new life. It's a death to the old life, the beginning of a new life. It's like burying the old unbeliever in the ground and a new believing man springs up to walk forward. Does pouring picture that? Not particularly. What about, what do people do when they die? They do this, 
and they're not visible anymore. They're under. And then they spring back to newness of life. Water baptism by immersion is what pictures the reality that's going on here. I have left the old life behind. I have died to that life. I live a new life now. A, li- a new life, a walk in newness of life. I have been crucified with Christ, buried and raised to walk in newness of life. The third question then, what happens when I am baptized? And there's four things here that I want to give you. And we will uh, probably look at a couple of scriptures here in connection with this. There's two things that happen to me as an individual when I'm baptized. And there are two things that happen as a church when a church baptizes someone. The first thing is when I'm baptized as an individual, I am going public, coming out of the closet as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If if there's someone and they say, I've got to be baptized, the first thing they've got to understand is in submitting yourself to the ordinance of baptism, you are making a public statement that you now are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a believer that he is the Lord and Savior. And so in being baptized, you are making that submission to Christ public and visible. I'm depicting visibly the gospel and its effects that I've passed from the realm of death to the new age, the age of the spirit, the age of life. So first of all, baptism is a public declaration of allegiance to Christ. Secondly, as an individual, when I'm baptized, I am committing myself to the body of Christ as a member. Invisible spirit baptism, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, joins me to the invisible body of Christ. And that invisible body of Christ becomes visible in various places as local churches spring up. Why does the Spirit join me to the body of Christ? And the answer is, because I need the other members and they need me. There are one another commands to fulfill towards one another in the body of Christ. And so if water baptism is the front door, the entrance into the local visible church, then by submitting myself to baptism, I am committing myself to that church to begin fulfilling those one another commands. I am submitting myself to them fulfilling those commands towards me. And so water baptism is a commitment to Christ, but how can you commit yourself to Christ and not commit yourself to his people? How can you commit yourself to Christ as Lord and not commit yourself to fulfilling all of his one another commands in the context of the body of Christ? And so as a new believer is baptized into the body of Christ, we receive him as a member and that obligates him to start acting like a member and it obligates us to start treating him like a member to fulfill those one another commands to exercise the love and authority of Jesus Christ towards him. So those are the two things that as an individual happen to me when I am baptized. Now, what about a church? As a church, when a church baptizes an individual, they are publicly affirming that individual to be a genuine follower of Christ as Lord and Savior. Would a church ever baptize someone if they were quite sure they were not a believer? No. We baptize believers and in baptizing them and receiving them publicly into the body of Christ, we're making a public declaration. This person belongs to the body of Christ and we're going to receive them into this fellowship. And so baptism, as we saw with Lydia's baptism, baptism is a judging of that individual who is baptized. It is judging them to be a believer. And so we've got to be very careful who we baptize, right? Whoever we put our stamp of approval on as a church, any church that baptizes an individual is putting their stamp of approval upon that individual and saying, this one belongs in the body of Christ. We're going to receive him in. We're going to bring him into this body because he belongs here. He is a follower of Christ. And that means that, well, I should say that's why in Muslim countries, It's not praying the prayer that gets you beheaded. It's being baptized that gets you beheaded. 
You will not suffer persecution in a Muslim country until you are baptized. You take that public stand and someone else points at you and says, yes, true believer, we will baptize him. At that point, the world knows this one is not part of us anymore. This one is part of a new world. So as a church, when we baptize an individual, we are publicly affirming them to be a genuine follower of Christ. And fourthly, as a church, when we baptize an individual, we are receiving them into the membership of the church and committing ourselves to fulfill the one another commands towards them with the authority and love of Christ. If someone comes to us and says, would you baptize me? We would say to them, yes, if you are a genuine believer, we want to know you. Are you a genuine believer? If you are, we will receive you into our membership. And you must understand that in committing yourself publicly to Christ in baptism, you are committing yourself to us publicly. You are committing yourself to fulfill those one another commands and we are committing ourselves to fulfill them towards you. And at that point, that believer becomes part of the one body, the visible one body of Christ. So let's look then at the implications of baptism. And so far, there's been a good bit of repetition. We've kind of hitting this from lots of different angles. And you're going to find that now with the implications of baptism. Uh, maybe a bit repetition again. But baptism in the last hundred years or so, um, believers always agreed on what baptism was and what it did until about a hundred years ago. And then faith became privatized. It became privatized in the same sense that gender is privatized today. Well, I identify as a female, so you got to treat me like a female. I identify as believers, so you got to treat me like a believer. In other words, faith was merely a matter between me and God, and you had to treat me like that regardless of whether or not you thought I was a believer or not. And that entered into Christianity about 100 years ago, and that meant then that baptism became a just a, well, if you think you ought to be baptized, we'll baptize you. And baptism lost all of the significance that the New Testament invests it with. And to a large degree, um, I think all of us have met streams of church history that have conditioned us to think about baptism in that way. And so it's, it's helpful for us just to think about this from the New Testament's perspective and to think about it from multiple different angles uh, to try to understand what the New Testament's saying. So... I think I told you that I had eight, and I think there's only seven implications on your sheet. So you have to figure out where to put number eight. But let's start off with number one. The first one is no one will be saved unless he has been baptized in the Spirit. There is no salvation apart from Spirit baptism. Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. No one will be saved unless he has been baptized in the Spirit. That's just how we're saved. Baptism is how we are joined to the body of Christ. Baptism is how we are joined to Christ himself, how we are admitted into his invisible body, where we receive redemption and righteousness and life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 makes this point clearly. We have been included in Christ... And he has become for us our wisdom from God and our redemption and our, our justification and our righteousness and our sanctification. There's none of those things for people like us if we are separated from Christ. So how are we included in Christ? Answer, we are baptized into Christ Jesus as he gives to us the spirit. And so one spirit of Christ unites us to Christ the head. One spirit of Christ unites us together with all of his people. That's how they, we've got a head and one body. So how important then is the baptism of the spirit? It's vitally important for your eternal life. But there's no salvation apart from being joined to the body of Christ. There's no salvation apart from receiving the spirit. That's just the shape of our salvation. And so then... 
If spirit baptism is pictured by water baptism, does that invest water baptism with any significance? Is this kind of like a, sure, whatever, you know, if you want to, if you don't want to, it doesn't really matter. How important then is, is water baptism required for salvation? Absolutely not. But is it kind of a take it or leave it sort of a thing? Apparently not. If it pictures the decisive moment when we pass from death into life, it's critical that every believer be baptized. The second implication of baptism then is that baptism is the process whereby believers, new believers, become members of local churches. We've said this several times, baptism is the front door of the local church. It's how you get in. Spirit baptisms, how you get into the spiritual body of Christ. Visible water baptisms, how you get into the visible body of Christ, the local church. Baptism is the process whereby believers, new believers, become members of local churches. And the front door is open to any who repent and believe and who knowledgeably submit themselves to baptism. Just like the back door, church discipline is open to any who stop repenting and believing. The third implication, because Jesus commands every believer to be baptized, he also commands every believer to join themselves to a local church. This is his expectation for us. I don't know of any believers who would argue, no, I don't have to be baptized. I really don't care about that. I know Jesus says something about that somewhere in Matthew, but it's not a big deal to me. I don't know of too many believers like that. But if baptism, water baptism, is the entrance into the church, then in commanding us to be baptized, Jesus Christ expects us to gather together into local churches. It's not sufficient for us to remain individual believers who just have church on the couch at home and watch some TV preacher preach. The local church is what it means to be saved, if we can say it that way. Gathering together into the body of Christ is what it means to be saved. That's how we're saved, by being united to the body of Christ. And so to refuse to be baptized, to refuse to submit yourself to the membership of a local church is to refuse to submit yourself to Christ's own authority. And it calls into question whether you are a member of his body at all. Fourthly, baptism is a public commitment to Jesus Christ and to his people. And the key word there is public. Baptism is a public commitment to Jesus Christ and to his people. Baptism is a commitment to fulfill the one another commands to the church body that baptizes you. It pictures spirit baptism. And if you could just follow for a minute here, water baptism Picture spirit baptism. If you look at Paul's epistles, what does he do with spirit baptism? So the, the new covenant God promises, I'll put my spirit within you. I'll give you the spirit. Okay, that's nice to know. I've got God's spirit now. Wonderful. What does that mean? Paul says, you've been given the spirit. That means two things. The first thing that means is since we now all have the one spirit, we're now one body. That's what it means. The second thing that Paul does with you now have the spirit is this. Since you all have the spirit, you now all have spiritual gifts to exercise in that one body. These gifts are given for the edification of the body. In other words, the same spirit who creates the body, joining it together to the head, Christ, is the same spirit who gifts every member of that body to minister to the other members. So the Spirit then defines the boundaries of my ministry in the local church. By that I mean, if water baptism pictures spirit baptism, then spirit baptism puts me in the body of Christ, and spirit baptism gives me gifts. I'm gifted by the Spirit. If water baptism pictures that, then water baptism defines where I'm supposed to exercise those gifts. Am I supposed to be a a YouTube uh, person who's straightening out all the believers in the world, or do I exercise the one another commands in my own local church? The spirit who gifts me to minister in the body 
in joining me to a specific body defines exactly where I'm supposed to minister. That's where we are to fulfill the one another commands. And so baptism is a public commitment to Jesus Christ and to his people. The fifth implication is this. Who the church baptizes is the decision of the entire church body. Who decides who gets baptized? Who the church baptizes or decides to baptize is the decision of the entire church body. If water baptism is the front door of the local church and church discipline is the back door, who gets to open the back door? Pastor? Any one of the members? The whole church gets to open the back door. We exclude someone from membership only after it's been brought to the whole church and the whole church determines this person should be treated like an unbeliever. Pushing them back across that line into the world and out of the membership of the church. Who opens that door? The whole church. Who opens the door to receive them in? The pastor? Is he the one who gets to decide, oh yeah, I think I'll baptize that guy. I think he'd be a great member of this church. The whole church has to make that determination. So what would this look like? Well, let's say that Bob's been witnessing to Sam. Sam gets saved. Bob says, Sam, you've got to come along with me to the church. Meet the people there. Sam comes. Bob and Sam are sitting there, right there. The pastor says, Bob, would you stand up and share with us the blessing that you've had this week in leading Sam to Christ? And Bob does. Sam shared Christ with them. Sam repented and believed. And after the service, Sam comes up to the pastor. I'd like to join this church. I'd like to be part of the body of Christ. And the pastor says, great. You know how that happens? It happens through baptism. So I would like to meet with you for six weeks. And I want to talk to you about what baptism means. What are you doing when you're baptized? What are your responsibilities in committing yourself to this local body of believers? And by the way, Sam, while we're meeting for the six weeks, we're going to let the congregation know that you and I are meeting about baptism and that you would like to join the church. And the reason why we're going to let the whole church know is because they want to get to know you too. Because in six weeks, I'm not making the decision as to whether or not we baptize you. They all are going to make this decision. And so they want to know you. Is this a man that we should baptize and receive into the church? Is this a man who's a genuine follower of Christ? So they're going to want to take you out for coffee. They're going to have you and your wife over for a meal. They're going to want to hear what God's done in you. They're going to want to hear how the spirits work in your life and what's happening now. And they want to hear your commitment to follow Jesus Christ. They want to hear your newfound love for him. Because in six weeks, we're going to ask the church, all right, how many of you would recommend that we baptize Sam? And six hands go up. We all met with him. This man is a genuine believer. And the whole congregation says, let's baptize him. We baptize him. And in coming up out of the water, Sam is now a member of this church by the assent and affirmation of the entire congregation. That's what I think is the way baptism should be carried out. And if you go back in church history you will find out that that's how believers have pretty much always done it. It has been a decision of the entire church. So that's number five. Who the church baptizes is the decision of the entire church body. Number six, baptism, and therefore church membership, is a formalized and visible commitment. Baptism and church membership is a formalized and visible commitment to both the church and the one who joins, visible to both the church and the one who joins the church. Let me read that again. Baptism and church membership is a formalized and visible commitment. Again, the word here, the primary word here is visible. It's a formalized and visible commitment, visible to both the church and the one who joins the church. Do you know the fastest way to build a church? I'll let you finish writing this so that the, the impact of this joke can land upon you. 
The fastest way to build a church is to go to a swimming pool where people are standing around the edge and push them all in. And then when they get up out of the water, you say, welcome to the church. Why is that not what the New Testament would want us to do? And the reason for that is because both people have to agree to baptism. In other words, they've got to talk about this thing. Yes, I will baptize you. Yes, I will be baptized. Yes, I will admit you into the church. Yes, I want to be admitted into the church. In other words, that has got to be a mutual arrangement, an agreement that goes both ways. It can't just be me pushing you into the swimming pool. And if baptism then is how we enter into the church and church membership, then that means that that process is a visible mutual agreement. It's something everybody knows. We are entering into a commitment to one another to fulfill the one another commands. In other words, it's not just that we drift in and drift out and maybe somebody's part of this church and maybe they're not. Am I really supposed to be caring for them? Am I really supposed to be praying for them? I'm not really sure whether they're here or not. Baptism and church membership has got to be a visible, mutual, formal, public commitment that everybody understands. It's got to be saying, I'm committing myself to you and you're committing yourself to me. That is the shape that the New Testament gives to church membership. It's something both parties vocalize, agree together to do publicly with each other's full knowledge and consent. And it is that agreement, that covenant, that commitment that forms one body. It's that agreement, that covenant, that commitment between the believers that forms the church. Think of the five Christians in Aldi. Are they a church? They could be if they agree together to fulfill the one another commands to each other. If they agree together to affirm one another's faith in Jesus Christ. And it is in that agreement, in that commitment, the commitment that we make visible in water baptism, it is in that that a church comes to birth. Number seven, God wishes believers to gather together into local churches. That are public, visible, identifiable, local, whatever, whatever word you want to use. The, the key point is God wishes believers not to be private disciples, quiet followers of Jesus. He says... If you do not confess me publicly before men, I will not confess you before the Father. He wishes for his people to be visible. And how does that happen? Does that happen by every person who is a follower of Christ getting to say, Hey, I'm one of Jesus' followers. There's lots of Christian people in the world who say, I'm one of Jesus' followers. Let me teach you what Jesus really had to say about gender and marriage. I'm one of Jesus' followers and I live like the devil. How is it that Jesus' followers become visible as Jesus' followers? It is through Christians agreeing together. We will form a church that is visible and public, a public gathering of the body of Christ. And you, I will be willing to affirm you as a genuine follower of Christ. And you will reciprocate. We will baptize each other. We will receive those who are genuine followers into this membership of Christ. We wish together to make the body of Christ visible. And so that is God's desire. That his people come together into visible public local churches. And baptism, by the very nature of the fact that it is public, baptism makes that visible. And number eight, this is the last one, and then see if there's any questions. Baptism then, and church membership, and church discipline, should draw the line clearly between the church and the world. What makes the line between church and world clear? What is the fundamental difference between the church and the world? The fundamental difference is that all those who are in the church have repented and they believe. And there's plenty of other things that come along with that. Holy living, that's a part of repentance. 
But the thing that makes the line between the church and the world is repentance. But nobody can see that. What makes the line between the church and the world visible, public? It's called baptism. And so, who are the true followers of Christ? It is those who have been baptized. If you want to find a genuine Christian, go find a church somewhere that preaches the gospel and look inside there. And hopefully they've been careful in who they admit so that to the best of their knowledge, the people inside that gathering are genuine followers of Christ. And hopefully they have been careful so that those who show up in the middle who don't repent are no longer visibly identified as, as visible as, as genuine followers of Christ. Okay? So that means that who we let in is important because baptism and church membership and church discipline, whoever we let across those lines takes on the character of a publicly affirmed, visible follower of Christ and anybody out there in the world. This is, this is, this is the world's criticism frequently of the church well there's so many hypocrites in the church you ever heard that does that speak well of jesus christ does that draw the line clearly between the church and the world where ought that line to be drawn along the lines of repentance and faith that manifests itself in a holy life but that repentance and faith is invisible what makes that line visible? What splits the, congregate, the, the, the assembly on Pentecost into two different groups? Well, actually, it's repentance, and visibly, it's baptism. And that creates two communities now, the community with the Spirit and the community that does not have the Spirit. One destined for life, one destined for damnation, one a follower of Christ, the other a follower of their own passions or the devil, or whatever you want to fill in the blank there with. So, it's a lot to go through. And I contemplated just leaving it really general. But I think it's helpful for us to think through some of the specifics. Because what that does is it helps us to adjust our mindset to the mindset of the scripture. Um, it's one thing to just think in general terms, yeah, I, I, I think I get baptism. But what does baptism actually look like? What does it mean? What does it do? And the thing that we haven't answered this morning is this. So what about if I've already been baptized in my last church? How do I join the next one that I go to? And that's what we come, that's what we come to next week. Um, but questions that you have, there are no dumb questions. Um, there is nothing that... Uh, I don't think there's anything that I've said here that I couldn't open up a passage of scripture and show you. So for that reason, you can ask anything you want and it's not going to be an attack on me at all. <laughs> um, I'm happy to make something clearer, make it clear for the first time if it wasn't clear the first time. So any questions or anything that uh, bugs you about that? It's Ariel. Um. So you were talking about baptism is the door into church, mm -hmm. church discipline is the door out, and what you need to receive baptism is repentance, Yep. and then for church discipline, you stop repenting. Yep. So what does that, reflect on what, was there a true repentance or in the beginning, we yeah. as a church yeah. family judged wrongly about mm -hmm. there being true repentance. Right. Yep. If originally, is yep. what that would be saying. Yeah. So you can think of the parable of the wheat and the tares, I think. Not the parable of the wheat and the tares. The parable of the four different kinds of soil. And there is such a thing as a false profession, you know. And for a little while, I mean, this thorny ground receives the word with joy. These guys are excited about this. And yet the cares of this world that deceive, and they never, never bear any fruit. Um, and so the church is going to make some mistakes. The question is, are we vigilant and are we going to correct those mistakes when they come along? And that correction is called church discipline. Um, to the best of our knowledge, we're not just going to let sin go on. 
And we're not just going to let people go on in sin without repenting. We're going to call each other to repent. And when that doesn't happen, it calls into question whether or not they truly are a believer. Um, the scripture is clear that time tells. Uh, time, you give a true believer time and he will show that he is a true believer. You give an unbeliever a bit of time and he will show that he's actually an unbeliever. And how quickly that rises to the surface um, depends in a lot of cases. But hopefully the gospel is being proclaimed in that church so clearly. And hopefully that people are caringly vigilant. That someone can't live in sin for 20 years before anybody knows about it. Hopefully we are concerned enough for people uh, that when someone falls into sin, when when Galatians 6 says, uh, you who are spiritual, it doesn't mean all the super spiritual saints, it just means the people who are walking in the spirit, the people who are living the normal Christian life, you who are spiritual, go after them and restore them and bring them back in a spirit of gentleness, patience, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Um, So hopefully the church in making Perhaps a wrong judgment initially has an opportunity and does correct that in the long term. And I think then that baptism's got to say something to us about our own assurance of salvation. You know, people, people struggle for a long time sometimes about, am I really a Christian? Look, I'm sinning. Am I really a Christian? I think maybe one of the best things that a person in that situation can do is to go to a body of believers that's preaching the gospel and say, hey, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just really having trouble figuring this out. Am I a genuine believer? Could you get to know me? I'll just be open and honest with you about where I'm at. And I, every Christian struggles and you understand that struggle and you understand the scriptures and help me assess whether or not I should be part of this church or not. And if I should be part of the church, help me to grow, help me to repent, help me to turn away from sin. And uh, for as long as you have a body of believers saying, you know, sister, you are struggling with sin, but that's exactly the point. You're struggling with sin. You're not just giving up. We're going to keep you here. That person has a great deal of reason to believe. My struggle with sin is common to all believers. But when all these believers who struggle with sin see someone who's given up in the fight, they have reason to say, This is not what Christianity is. It's not being at peace with sin. We can't continue to regard you as a believer. Um, We'd love to see you repent. We'd love to have you come back. You know, does that person lose their salvation or gain? No. Does water baptism give you salvation or not? No. It just makes visible who is a genuine follower of Christ. And it also puts you in the situation where you can grow amongst the care of other believers in the body of Christ. I don't know. Does that help answer the question a bit? Yeah. Yeah. Then I was wondering too, in a situation where there's an unbeliever that is joined yep. to a church and membership, and they continue in that church for years and years and years and years, and then make a profession of faith. Does that reflect some failure on the behalf of the church, on part of the church? Possibly, yeah. Or an extra deceitful unbeliever? Or Possibly, yeah. yeah. Now, you think about, um, uh, uh, um, you think about the parable of the tares again, the uh, parable of the wheat and tares. How, where do these things become visible? I mean, ultimately, the ultimate judge of these things is Christ himself. And it's when he comes that the angels root out the tears. He's the only one who can make the infallible judgment. Um, but in the case where you've got a unbeliever who's been part of that church for a long time, um, I think it does reflect on, and this is what I think, okay, and we could go to scripture passages, and um, I, hope, I hope that I'm speaking now with uh, what the scripture says in view. But I think it does reflect on the church to some degree that someone could live for 20 years and nobody even knows that person, really. Or that the standard for what a Christian is is so different from the New Testament standard 
that, yeah, he checks all the boxes and he has for the last 30 years. Well, is our understanding of exactly what a Christian is, is that right? And if, if, if we've got a skewed understanding of what a Christian actually is, what repentance actually looks like, then yeah, somebody can fly under the radar for 30 years and nobody's the wiser. But when the gospel is, is proclaimed and the scriptures are preached, hopefully at some point that person is going to realize or the church is going to realize. Um, and hopefully the church in what being one body doesn't live like this. Hopefully the church lives like this. And so having a window into another person's life is not, a, not an abnormal thing. Um, there are a lot of churches that live like this, not like one body, you know. And what happens there is in the darkness of that anonymity and secrecy, sin thrives and nobody knows. And that's a problem. Anything else? Any other questions? My question was actually the one you're going to answer next week. <laughs> so what about you've been yeah, baptized? I was like, come on. Last week you said it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you a passage of scripture to meditate on. Okay. So we've looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 12. You can look at this passage of scripture. It's one that I had never really considered. And somebody called it to my attention about five years ago. Um, we just looked at 1 Corinthians 12, and maybe it'd just be helpful f for me to put this question out on the table again for you in light of 1 Corinthians 12. So look at 1 Corinthians 12, and then we're going to stop because i got to get Army to the train station. And uh, uh, we'll start with questions next week, so write them down. So 1 Corinthians 12, we are asking the question, verse 13, we all one body. What takes the we all and makes us one body? And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's baptism. We're baptized into the body. One per, we all baptized into the body of Christ. We've all entered the body of Christ by baptism. So there's the we all, one body. Okay. So look at 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Just back a page. Maybe I can cover the Lord's Supper here in two minutes. <laughs> Read all the way from verse 14 to 22 on your own. But the specific verse to look at is verse 17. Verse 17 has a we all, a many, and a one body. And the question is, what stands between the we all and the one body? What takes the we all and makes us one body? And you'll find the answer to that in verses 14 to 22, but specifically verse 17. And I want you, as you think about this verse this week, I want you to ask the question of what comes first. The first phrase of the verse is, talks about one bread. The second phrase of the verse talks about one body. Question, does the one breadness come first and then the one bodiness, or does the one bodiness come first and then the one breadness? The way that this passage typically is spoken of is in terms of this. Do you know why we all eat one loaf of bread at the Lord's Supper? Because we're one body. One body, so let's eat one bread. Is that the order in the passage? Does the one breadness, does the one bodiness cause the one breadness? Or does the one breadness cause the one bodiness? And you'll find the answer if you read the whole context. Okay? And that's what takes the we all and makes us one body. Well, you could look at it that way. Yep, yep. As we all partake of one bread, we are one body. That's the order of the thing there. So what does that mean? What is this partaking of one bread? Well, try reading verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, and you'll find out what Paul means by the partaking of one bread. And it's something that we are familiar with. Okay. All right, let's pray, and then I'm going to run out. Take army to the train station. Lord God, thank you for the blessing of your word that gives us light. And I pray, Father, that you would make Christ the center of our gathering, that we would regard ourselves as baptized into his body, 
that we are one because of him and not because of anything else. We're not one because of our viewpoints or our preferences or our druthers. We are one because of your work. And Lord, that means that there's never any real reason for disunity because Christ doesn't change. Our ideas might change and somebody might rub us the wrong way, but Christ remains the same. And so we strive to love one another, even in spite of those differences and in spite of those provocations. And I pray, Father, that you would make Christ the center of our gathering of believers, that no man, no group of men, no individual would rule over this church. Nothing in us would produce the unity but only Christ. And may we then be a legitimate and true and genuine and accurate reflection of the body of Christ and the gospel that creates it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.